The following program is a podcast1.com production. I'm so glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. I want you to know that coming up in today's Clark Rageous Moment, there's several somethings you should never buy at a chain drugstore. I'm going to tell you what those things are because spending your money that way is absolutely Clark Rageous. And later this hour, smartphone addiction is something that is a real deal. And my wife says, I'm completely addicted. It's something we need to talk about. It. There's actually some positives about smartphone addiction that I wouldn't have considered, wouldn't have thought about. Speaking of doing something on your smartphone, going to Clark.com, that's a very positive use of your smartphone. And going to Clark.com slash ask to ask me a question, that would be a good use too, right? And I hope that you have checked out ClarkDeals.com. Speaking of which, there is something that is not a deal. Costco Wholesale is raising its membership fee and going up to 60 a year for a base member, 120 for the premium Costco membership. If you have the premium membership, the advantage of it, the, they call it the executive membership, is you get 2% cash back on everything you buy. But you got to spend a fair amount to make that work. And for me, I'm such a believer in the deals from Costco that I'm happy to pay the higher membership. But if your renewal is coming up within 60 days, you can renew without having to pay the new higher membership fee. You'll at least get one more year at the old price. So 59 days out, you are free to renew and get a better deal. So I've noticed that there are deals popping up all over the place right now for Sam's Club memberships at $30 for a year. Sam's Club trying to get people to sample them and maybe dump their Costco membership. Doing these deals right now where you pay 30 instead of Sam's normal price, I think, is 45 50, And looking right now on Groupon, and there's a deal on Groupon where you can get a one-year membership for 30 and... They give you other bonuses with it. And so you're able to get a $10 gift card dropping the price effectively to 20 bucks. So that is a real bargain. In addition, if you're willing to pay 45 for a one-year membership on the Groupon offer, you get the $10 gift card and you get $100 and additional savings in the store. I love competition. So got two ways for you to save with that today. And speaking of shopping in physical stores, like Sam's or Costco, this is one I didn't see coming. It is new research from Adobe. And Adobe 
has a chart showing how many states in the country online sales declined last year. You may be someone who shops a whole lot online and maybe more so year by year or even month by month, but your experience may not mesh with a lot of other people. And the reason is there are people who shop online who tend to be often wealthier. They may more likely live in an urban core where shopping online is a lot more convenient than having to lug things around. And I've said for a while, with the transition in Amazon from being a bargain place to shop to being all about convenience, that shopping online is not necessarily going to be cheaper. Now, I constantly compare prices. I even do something so 1975. I read Sunday sales flyers and look for deals in those flyers. And those are things where you actually go to a building and you open a door and you go inside and you pick things out. And I only know how to shop in stores with concrete floors. And they have shopping carts, although I like to avoid getting a cart because I buy stuff I don't need. But it's not like traditional retail is dead. It may be for you. But for so many people who are price sensitive... You can use your smartphone as a way to comparison shop prices, but you may well find that the best price on something is going to be in a physical store. My wife's fitness tracker croaked, and she wanted one like I have. I don't even know what you call this thing I have. It's some kind of Garmin that is really, really great, but it looks like a full nerd alert kind of thing it's called the garmin vivo active hr that is such not a good marketing name is it and joel you look at that that that's about as ugly as something could be that you wear on your wrist it's a little bulky yeah it's really um utilitarian let's call it but i love the thing because it makes me work out a lot more because it's always haranguing me that I need more steps, and if I haven't walked in enough time, it'll it'll vibrate, and it'll say across the screen, move, with an exclamation point. And so my wife wanted one, and I went online and looked, comparison shopped, and of all places, when I found one for her, the best price was at Target. And I went to Target, and I picked her up one, and she got it. And that's where the smartphone really came through, because they were cheaper at that moment than anybody selling that Garmin device online. And so I went to an actual physical store and picked up the item, and she loves the thing. And it gives her her... uh, email alerts and tells her who's calling and her text messages and all that Uh, she's on an iphone and she i had gotten her as a gift last year a year and a half ago i got her and i what's the apple watch and the thing went in a drawer after like a week never to be seen again and this thing 
I mean, you'd have to fight her for this Garmin thing. But the point is, there is no magic specifically to shopping online with online being cheaper. Online is a tool, and you can use it as a way to save. And, you know, I know there are so many retailers in trouble, so many retailers filing for bankruptcy, so many closing stores, because America, forget the Internet, America is vastly what they call overstored. We built far too many shopping centers. Retailers opened way too many locations. And that has been so exposed by the competition coming from the Internet. But as far as pricing, know that no one place, no one website, no one retail store has the absolute cheapest prices. It's up to you and me to look around and comparison shop if saving money really matters. Ed is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Ed. Hello, Clark. How are you doing? Excellent. Yourself? Good, thank you. You have something that's getting really old in your life, a home equity line, right? Right. And um, it's been down to zero for quite a while. And it's coming um, time to either get a new one or just let it um, end its life. And so the question I have is, from a credit score standpoint, is it going to help me or hurt me to go ahead and, let's say, get another $200,000 home equity loan but never use it? Now, is it a loan or a line? Because the distinction with the difference is a line you can draw in basically with like a check. No, it's a line. Line, line. and the interest rate floats. So let's step away from the credit aspect for a second. Let me ask you this. So do you find that it's been a useful financial tool for you to know that that's available in a financial emergency of some kind? Um, It is, although I doubt that I'd ever need to use it, um, except for maybe... I might use it to make some other investments that pay a whole lot higher interest rate. So that would be the only reason I might want to use it. Because I like the idea of home equity lines of credit as standby in lieu of keeping money in things like simple savings accounts or anything like that. If you have assets and you keep them invested, and if you had a sudden financial emergency having to sell investments could be at a bad time. And that's where a home equity line of credit, I think, can be very useful. This is for people who carry very little or no debt in their lives. A home equity line of credit can be a wonderful tool. As far as how it would affect your credit, how long are you staying in the house you're in? Uh, We've been there 28 years, and we've probably got another 5 to 10. Okay. So you're not looking to get a new mortgage or anything like that. I think having a home equity line of credit is a good idea uh, as a strategic thing. Then in terms of your credit, the history of the home equity line you have will benefit you for years to come, the fact that it's been there. The issue potentially is available credit and ratios in terms of use of available credit, and that would put the argument towards you taking out a new HELOC, a new home equity line of credit. But what will it cost you to originate that HELOC that would replace well, the, the one that's done? 
They said it's not going to cost you anything. If it won't cost you anything, I'd do it. Okay. That's what I was thinking. All right. Well, best to you, Ed. Well, thanks, Clark. Thanks. And Teresa's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Teresa. Hi. Teresa, you need to buy a car. Well, um, I might need to. My car is, is it's kind of old. It still runs, but um, I'm thinking if I do some traveling and drive a lot over the next couple of years, I, I want to really rely on my car. So you use your car, your older car now, to just get around as you need to. But if you take a road trip, that's when it makes you nervous. Yeah, and I'll be um, I'll be working and traveling a lot more in the next um, couple years. So I'm thinking that I would take money out of my Roth, my Roth IRA to pay for a new car. You know, I'm going to tell you something. I would not recommend that for one principal reason: car loans are dirt cheap. As long as you have good credit, is your credit good? My credit is excellent. If your credit's excellent, are you a member of a credit union? No. All right, I want you to join a credit union. And one of the things that drive people to join credit unions is because they are buying a newer used car. Because credit unions write by far the cheapest car loans. Okay. And the reason Um, I'd want you to do that instead of withdrawing money from your Roth is that your Roth is working for you. The money that's in there is growing tax-free. It can continue to grow tax-free till you need money in retirement. And so with car loans being as cheap as they are, I'm looking at one of the credit unions I'm a member of, and right now they're doing new car loans for people with really good credit at 1.8% and used car loans 25 to 2.9%. It rates that cheap. I mean, you just don't want to withdraw money from a retirement account when you can borrow the effectively the cash you need to buy a car so 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 inexpensively. You know, paying uh, you know 1 to 3% interest is almost free money. Okay. Um, yeah, the, this car I'm driving now, I pretty much bought it outright. So it makes me a little nervous to have that monthly payment on a loan. Yeah, but see, let's you know? say you take out the loan and you start hiccuping financially or worse. You would still at that point have the option as a fallback of withdrawing your some of your contributions you've made to a Roth and use that as a way to pay off the loan. So I'd rather you up front borrow the money you need for the car. You're very I can tell you're very careful with your money, very conservative. You wouldn't be getting a new car if you didn't really feel like you needed it. I'm not worried about you having that car loan. Today's Clark Rageous moment comes to you compliments of my wife and one of my daughters who dragged me into national national drugstore chains and make me break out into hives when we get to the register at how much things cost it is today's clark rageous moment scams ripoffs outrages it's a clark rageous moment years ago i told you about a study that was done by consumer world that found that the average drugstore item that is something you could also find in a grocery store 
was on average 50% more, 50% more in the drugstore chain than it was in a supermarket. And when I go there with my family to one of those drugstore chain places, I just cannot believe what a favor they're doing for me, that I get to see what prices are going to be decades from now when I'm probably dead already. I mean, it is unbelievably clark Rageous for your wallet when you consider that convenience stores, which, by the way, many of the convenience store chains are now cheaper item to item compared to one of the drugstore chains, compared to a supermarket, discount store, whatever, they're open such great hours now. Why would you ever waste your money in a drugstore chain? Don't do it. You know, if you're looking to buy paper towels or a can of beans, knowing what other people paid for them isn't really that important. Paper towels, it's beans. But for a big purchase, like a car, that kind of information isn't just helpful, it's essential. Well, with TrueCar, you can do just that. You see, TrueCar lets you see what other people in your area paid for the car that you're looking to buy, which will help you determine a fair price. And the best part? You can work directly with a True Car certified dealer to establish a fair price before you even show up on the lot. Yeah, that's right. True Car certified dealers have all the same information you do and are just there to help you get the car you want while offering you a faster, easier buying experience. Who doesn't want that? And knowing what others have paid has helped True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that car, there's only one place to go. Visit TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. You can get it at TrueCar.com or the super easy to use TrueCar app. Some features not available in all states. So glad you're with us on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. You have questions for me, clark.com slash ask. As I mentioned a half hour ago, I want to talk about the pluses and minuses of our addiction to screens. And you may wonder, what plus could there possibly be to people being addicted to a smartphone, a tablet, laptop, any kind of screen? And one of them that is really surprising, but if you think through, makes sense, is that teenagers are engaging in less risky behavior, according to a report that I read, one of the versions of I read in the New York Times, that teenagers are so addicted to their screens that they're smoking cigarettes less, drinking alcohol less, and taking up illicit drugs less. Which tells you, as clear as could be, that these screens are highly addictive. That they do reach our brain potentially in the same kind of ways that something like a cigarette would or alcohol would. And so teens for the last 10 years 
there's been a trend line where teens' use of unhealthy substances is declining. At the same time, these devices are so addictive that they're the negatives for teens that they cannot keep their eyes on the road when they're driving because they're so tempted to use Snapchat or Instagram or whatever it is they're really into while they're behind the wheel instead of focusing on the road. And by the way, they're not the only ones. I was talking with a police sergeant earlier today, and we were talking about the distractions that occur on the road with all drivers that are so busy looking at their phones. But I'll tell you one of the weirdest things about all this is when I was a teenager, uh, contrary to my kids' beliefs, we actually had electricity, we had vehicles, we didn't call them vehicles then, we called them cars and trucks, and we had television, didn't have color when I was a kid, but we had TV and radio. We also had something called a phone. And it was this thing that you had one per house, and it was connected with a wire to the wall, and there was a dial on it that you dialed the number. You probably have seen one in an old movie or something. But we communicated by telephone as kids with other kids. And it would be a push and shove in a household about using the phone because the teenagers in a house always wanted to be on the phone. Today, most teenagers don't like to be on a phone and have trouble many times with basic phone etiquette, if you will, because phones just are almost like foreign to them as something to talk with somebody on. They might do a video chat, But that's a whole different thing. And our kids are losing some of the abilities to communicate well with somebody else and also to have a long enough attention span. But anything like this is a mixed bag for all of us. And I believe on balance, even though uh, the phone can be a distraction, that the capabilities that our kids are getting as digital natives are so valuable that I think these devices are good for them overall, not bad. And then to think of something totally unexpected consequence, the reduction in cigarette smoking, who would have ever seen that? Are kids drinking or using illicit drugs? Who would have seen that? Unintended consequences so often or so much of life, but also your quality of life can suffer because of these gadgets. Joel, you gave me a great example recently about how Facebook, it was Facebook, right? Yeah. It was disruptive in your life? Yeah, I just noticed, uh, and I guess I probably could have just turned off the notifications for the app, but it would just buzz in my pocket. And so I'd pull it out and I'd look at my phone and I'd be on it for a few minutes because I just scrolled through Facebook. Uh, and it was, it just it got to the point where I was like, this isn't 
healthy at buzzing in my pocket and me it was like pavlov's dog right i was just doing it every time it buzzed and so i decided just to delete the app off my phone and i feel like my head is clearer like i'm just having better interactions with people and on an everyday basis everyday level like at work at home it's just been better for me not having it on my phone at all and so i see it once or twice a day when i'm on a computer but that's it well one of the disruptions in my life was having email on my smartphone and what i did was i changed the settings on my phone which you can very easily do so that email only comes once every two hours to my phone and that's made that a whole lot less disruptive so you can use electronics you can use these capabilities that electronics have you can use technology to make technology less intrusive in your life and that's something i've done we have another rule in our house we are not allowed to have a smartphone when we're having a meal. Smartphone has to be left away from the table and cannot be looked at. A call cannot be answered while we're at a meal, period. So we actually have to look at each other, talk with each other, and laugh with each other. It's a pretty basic thing, right? I think about how often I'll be out at a restaurant and I'll see people at a two-top, you know, you know, two people at a table, and how often they're not even looking at each other, and they're both looking at their phones. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Chris. How are you? Great. Thank you, Thank you Chris. Today. I have just finished my sem- semi-annual checkup meeting with my financial planner, and it seems like I always walk away with a list of homework to do, which is a good thing, things I need to be kind of prompted to move forward with. But I've been asked to review our health care directives, power of attorney, and wills. And as I was doing that, I kind of ran into a roadblock. My wife and I own uh, two timeshares that we've owned for 10 to 15 years. We love them. We use them. Never been a year that we didn't use those. And our children love them as well, but now the kids are married, they have small children, and they are the beneficiaries of these timeshares. But my question is, upon our passing, what if the kids don't want to inherit these timeshares? What is the they don't. process the kids Trust would me. need to do? Trust me. Okay. They don't, Chris. No matter how much you've made them work for you and how much you've enjoyed them, you don't want to create a potential obligation for them. Right. And the suggestion that was given to me by a real estate lawyer years ago, which is one that I've given ever since, is that you should change. Is this a designation in the title for the timeshares, or have you done it in your will? It's in the timeshare. Okay, so you want to change that and make a charity the recipient, uh, the beneficiary of those timeshares, when you pass away, and then the charity will likely renounce the receipt of them if they can't turn it into any kind of money. Okay. But you don't want to leave a chain where ultimately your kids are left with something that sticks to them like glue. Yeah, I've explained to them that the ongoing obligations that are there, and if you don't lose, if you don't use it, there's no sense having that. Um, so, but you know, also when we purchased these, the kids, the kids were minors, and I didn't know if that had anything to do possibly with the way things would shake out as well, too. Not that I'm at, aware at of. Time, 
If, if you okay. have, if you've named your kids in the chain of title, is that they are to be the the uh, ultimate owner at the time of your death? That's what you need to get changed. It doesn't help to change it in your will. Okay. Okay. Well, very good. I have answers, and I can put forward instructions for them going forward, and I'll try and get that taken care of as well. And Chris, you know, it's such a great topic you brought to the table for a related issue. You know, so often, our, you know, we go through a long lifespan, and we have so many things that we may have created over the years, like could be a 401k or an IRA or whatever. And do you know that one thing that most people don't know is that the beneficiary designation that you may have for an IRA or anything like that trumps whatever you put in your will. Yes, my, my financial advisor is keen on that, and we review those with our IRAs, Roth and traditional, et cetera, each time to make sure you still want it like this, you still want to keep everything like this. So I appreciate that, and that's something that they say is overlooked time and time and time again. Yeah, it's a shocker for people. You know, the thing that lawyers talk about who do uh, estate planning, the number one shock is when somebody may have had a prior marriage and the money that they have in a retirement account when they pass away ends up, and they don't realize, the the survivors realize they never do because they passed away, that the money ends up going to the uh, former spouse instead of the current one because they never changed the beneficiary designation on an account set up long ago. Nigel's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Nigel. Hello, how's it going? Great, thank you. I'm very sorry to hear you lost a loved one, is that right? Yeah, we lost my dad to cancer. I'm very sorry. <laughs> well, how may I be of service to you at this tough time? Well, my question is, he was a farmer, and uh, I'm taking over for him, and I've applied and got a line of credit or whatever and all that, but I was wondering if you would suggest getting a credit card so I can build up some credit. Wow, so you were able to get a, a line of credit even though you have generally no credit, or how much credit do you have? I have no credit. I had to go through the the banks. No bank would lend to me, so I had to go through uh, the government and get a first-time farmer loan. Okay, so you're starting to show some credit right there that's going to show up on your credit report, typically within 60 days. Okay. And so do you have a credit union near where you have the farm? Um, I'm not sure. I've never actually really looked into it. Because the best place for you to establish traditional credit is going to be at a credit union. And okay. they they often have what are known as fresh start programs Although, because of the loan you now are going to potentially show on your credit, you may be able to jump right past a fresh start. Don't know. But I would, within the next month or so, look for a credit union in your area. If you go to cuna.org, there's a function on there where you can find a credit union. 
and you put in your zip code, and it'll show you what is near you. And getting uh, generally what you want from the credit union is a Visa or MasterCard. Okay. And under the Fresh Start system, they may they may have you put a small amount of money in a savings account or a CD at the credit union in order to issue you your initial Visa or MasterCard. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I uh, googled which credit cards for bad to no credit, and <laughs> all of them had thirty five percent interest. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do those. <laughs> Well, you're very smart. You know, a lot of what you're going to find available to people that are looking for what's known as a secured card normally are going to be cards with very ugly terms and conditions. And that's why, without even hesitation, I always encourage people to go to a credit union is where you go to establish that first level of credit that you're going to need. And once you get that established, it becomes really easy after that as long as you keep your use of that credit card very low, you'll be fine. And again, I'm very sorry about the loss of your dad. Marianne is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Marianne, speaking of cell phones as we were earlier, you want to talk about consumer cellular. Is that right? Yes, that's right. My husband and I are looking for a good carrier, and we both have dinosaur phones. You know those little flip phones? Sure. People laugh at our phones. We, I've never had a smartphone. My husband's had one for work, but um, that's just all for work. And we were thinking of getting a smartphone. Um, like, Can I name the phone we're thinking about? Sure. The, we're thinking of getting an Apple One iPhone. And uh, the magazine... I, I, Consumer Reports um, liked Consumer Cellular, but John said that he didn't find anything about Consumer Cellular um, mentioned in your report. And he said, I wonder, he said, see what Clark Howard has to say consumer about cellular, Consumer Cellular. You, you can tell your husband, and the reality is Consumer Cellular is a great provider. People who use them love them. They are for a specific segment of the market, people who use a cell phone very lightly, you pick how much you're going to use, like you pick how many minutes you think you'll use in a month, how much data you might use, smartphone data, and the typical person pays roughly uh, somewhere around $25 a month. Wow. That's that's a lot more than we're paying for our two little flip phones. Well, but I, I said typical. You can yeah. spend a lot less yeah. with consumer cellular. A lot of people spend as little as 15 a month. So if you're oh. looking to use a phone very sparingly, but you'd like to have a smartphone, consumer cellular is a very good choice. They are known for having outstanding customer service, and it is a very, very affordable option for a light user on the other hand for a moderate user that's where marianne you'd really want to look at the choices on my guide that may be a better choice for you but for a light user like you've been historically if you want to stay in that area consumer cellular could be a great decision rocket mortgage by quicken loans proudly supports this podcast When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust. 
someone who's got your best interests in mind. And with Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in just minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure that you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank. Skip the waiting. Go completely online at quickenloans.com slash save. That's quickenloans.com slash S-A-V-E. Let Rocket Mortgage help you get the exact mortgage solution that you need. Go to quickenloans.com slash save. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. I'm so glad you've joined us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our website. Our deal site is clarkdeals.com. When you have a question, clark.com slash ask. Coming up a half hour from now, I'm going to step into a hornet's nest and hopefully not get stung. I'm going to talk to you about, in a hyperpartisan environment, about health care in the United States. I'm going to tell you what I think are the things we need to do to make our country healthier in terms of our individual health and our nation's physical health as well. And that's coming your way in just a half hour. I want to talk right now about how we have been through various times that people get all excited about an individual stock because it's something that's part of their lives. We saw it when Facebook first went public. Is just an example. Um, recently, Snapchat going public, parent company Snap. And now Airbnb is talking about the fact that it's going to have what's called an IPO, initial public offering. And so people tend to favor stocks of companies that they have firsthand experience with. And I know there are people that are investment professionals that say, You should buy what you know. But actually, what you know as a customer is not the same as knowing what you might need to as an investor. Because the reality is most wealth is made in companies that no one's ever heard of. Just as I talk about some of the best job opportunities tend to be with companies no one's ever heard of. You think about if you're at an event or a party or whatever and somebody will talk about what they do or you might ask, so what what do you do? Where do you work? And if somebody says something that sounds like high prestige or exciting, you're engaged. You want to talk to them about what they do, right? But if they tell you that they work for an industrial equipment manufacturer or something, you're like, oh, nice seeing you. They, they're off somewhere else. But when you buy something like a tech stock, and a lot of people in their 20s and 30s have been really keen on buying tech stocks like Snap. The question is, what is their business model? Is it something that you can see clearly they're going to be profitable? 
and it's hard to know. In fact, you look at that stock and the value's gone like a yo-yo, right? But a lot of people who've never bought individual stocks have bought that one. And they may eventually be proven lucky. You didn't hear me say right if it does really well. Because it's hard to know. It's a bit of a gamble buying individual stocks anyway. Because even a company that is well-known and has a long track record of profits, owning individual stocks carries more risk because what happens if their market conditions change or the leadership fouls up or somebody comes up with a better way of doing whatever they're doing. So the reason I want to talk about this is when you buy an individual stock, unless you do deep, strong, fundamental research on that company, dig deep into things that are ultra dull like their 10Qs and 10Ks, which are the kind of things that only financial types and accountants like to read. But when you dig deep, that's when you can start to develop a knowledge base that allows you to make decisions. You know, so many people follow Warren Buffett, and he's looked at as a phenomenal genius, which he is and has had enormous success. But do you know he takes forever before he makes a decision to invest in a company? And then he goes all in when he invests, but he really takes his time and will sit and sit and sit and wait till he feels like he's got the right information to make a decision. Most of us with our busy lives will make snap decisions about a stock like Snap or any other stock. I didn't actually mean to say that. It just came out of me. But the point is something that I hold true and dear, and that is a philosophy that uh, the guy Charles Schwab, who's got the big brokerage house that has his name on it, I don't know if he has much of anything to do with it anymore as a retiree, but he forever has had a philosophy that he called core and explore, that you start with doing your investment base that's done in widely held things like index funds, where you own little pieces of hundreds or thousands of companies. And that's where your base is, is just in American or worldwide capitalism. And then from there, if you want to make individual bets on individual companies, fine. But the key is you never want to bet your future on one company because the truth is, most of the time, companies will not exactly flourish, even when they have an exciting idea, an exciting service, or exciting product. And that's why you don't bet too much on any one enterprise. And that's why in 401k plans, I never want you owning your employer's stock. You're already getting your paycheck from them. I don't want you to base your future financial security on the same people you're getting your paycheck from. Kathy's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Kathy. Well, hey, Clark, how are you? Great. I hope you're having a wonderful day. 
I am. Thank you. How may I serve you? Well, I'm just really curious about this app that both of my adult daughters told me about. It's called Venmo. V is in Victor, E-N-M-O? Yes. And it, it's, it sounds fascinating. It's brilliant. Is it? Yes, your daughters are brilliant for using it. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> it is such a great tool for you to think about. You know, one of the, one of the reasons that Venmo became so popular is it allowed to end the awkwardness when a bunch of people would go out together to a social occasion or whatever, and right. the bill comes, and they're settling up, and one of them could say, okay, I'll pay for it, you just Venmo me your share. And yeah. right then and there at the table, they can all send a quick amount of cash right to the person who took care of the check overall at least at first before they got reimbursed and it just works flawlessly well so you're um and i know you've researched it and you're you're really fine with the security and the way it gets your bank account number and all that well okay so let's be realistic here every single secure platform in the world is subject to some level of risk. Right. But the thing about these financial platforms, everything about how they're built from the ground up is to create a secure environment. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they are 100% safe, but I'd put them 99.999% safe. Love now, it. I'd move the decimal point way over to being ultra, ultra safe and it's much safer than people having to carry cash around that could put them at risk of somebody uh, sticking them up for money or whatever. Right. Well, do you have the app? I don't use Venmo, but I, I can tell you that my oldest daughter uses it constantly. Yeah. Well, uh, the other day, I took one of my I took one of my grand dogs to the vet for my daughter. And it was a lot. She had a lot of things going on. It was like $497. And so my daughter just automatically Venmoed me. And I was just kind of, I was astounded at how, how on earth it works. But I, I read on it, and, I mean, it makes sense with the technology today. But I really wanted to, to hear from you. I have a lot of friends from other states who were asking about it. And... I wanted to ask the expert. I'm I'm completely comfortable with using Venmo among family and friends. Yeah. And the area they even warn you about is don't use it as a way to pay somebody who you're buying stuff from sight unseen or anything like that because the money can take a one-way trip to a crook. But when it's among known people, it's wonderful. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I really am. That's, that makes me feel a lot better because I, I actually just seems like I stepped into it before I researched it. But, you know, your daughters... Yeah, but your daughters, I mean, think about it. They, <laughs> they approach the world differently and they live in the midst of technology all day long. And yes. I would trust them on that. Well, I did. And it's just so good to talk to you. I just... 
admire everything you do for our country and keeping keeping everything uh, checks checks and balances. Well, you were so kind to say that, and I should mention, and I failed to, Kathy. There are many other competitors now of Venmo that are all offering these free payment platforms, and the banks are now terrified of it, and the banks are now trying to come up with their own platforms, but so far, the bank alternatives completely fall flat. They don't have the versatility that's available from the third-party ones like Venmo, and if the banks ever become dominant, you know what they're going to do. They're going to take this free platform, and they'll start charging for it. Kevin is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Clark. How are you? Great. You're going to buy a home. I own my home now outright, and I'm looking to move to get a better school district. And I'm a 1099 contractor, so my taxes show a really low adjusted gross income. And I'm trying to determine the best way to make this move without having to go to like a rental home in between. So you want to sell the home you're in, use the proceeds, go towards another home. And yes, sir. if you do that, how much down payment essentially will you be able to make on the next home? I'm looking at a home in the price range of 175 to 200 for my future purchase and my current home's worth about 110 to 120 and I'm going to use 100% of the sale price into the down payment. Oh, so you have no mortgage right now, so you would be better than 50% cash into the deal. Yes, sir. All right, so getting that approved, if you went to a big bank, that's not going to happen, even with that enormous amount of equity. But that kind of deal should be easily accomplished through a mortgage broker, mortgage banker, or a credit union or a local bank. Okay. And so what you do is you go sit down and talk to, are you a member of a credit union yet? No, sir. Join one, go sit down with a loan officer at the credit union you join, talk to them about what you want to do, and they'll tell you whether they can make you a temporary bridge loan pending your old home selling and then put you into a permanent loan same question would come up with a mortgage broker or banker. And, you know, the reality is they talk is cheap, right? But in this case, if you identify a home you want to buy pending loan approval and you are able to get the loan, the temporary loan you need before you put in the big amount of money for a permanent loan, you'll know before you close that you were able to pull the thing off. But that is, because of the amount of equity you'll be bringing to the table, you will be able potentially to avoid the middle move. But in spite of the disruption of the middle move, it may be more financially favorable to you to do the temporary move into rental housing between the sale of your old home and the purchase of the new home, because then you're only having to close on a single home loan instead of closing on a home loan twice. Okay. So it's a lifestyle question, what that lifestyle choice is worth to you. And the only other concern I have is making sure that the rental home can be in the school districts we're attempting to move to. That's the only other variable I have. Right. And and that's an issue, but 
Um, you know, you might not find the, the, your favorite rental place to live in, but you should, within reason, be able to find one within the school district you want to go to. Okay, and a temporary bridge loan is the correct terminology to... Request. Normally, that's what people would call it. Okay. And it would be a floating rate loan designed typically to close uh, to be closed out in a number of months, not years. And that doesn't mean less than 12 months. It just means they're thinking of it as a very temporary kind of financing. It's Ask Clark time. That's where you post a question for me at clark.com, and then our producer, Joel, asks it for you. Joel? Yeah, Clark Patricia wrote in. She says, is a home warranty plan a good purchase for me as a landlord to purchase one for my rental home? What an interesting question. Gosh, I've been asked that so few times over the years. Generally, if you are a landlord, you'll tend to, over time, develop a list of professionals that go to work for you. You'll have your electrician, your plumber, you'll have the people that do your repairs for you that you trust. I prefer that over you looking at having a home warranty. Now, the home warranty would be deductible as an expense against your rental property, and that's a reason some people may get one of those home warranties on a rental property. But I think the most important thing is your tenants are going to want quick quick response when something's broken and you don't get that with the home warranty companies and i think you're just going to find it to be an exercise in frustration for yourself but especially for your tenants if you're relying on that as a way for you to insure your home hey guys david smalley here reminding you to check out dogma debate on the podcast one app itunes and basically everywhere else you could possibly hear a podcast Dogma Debate is basically a way for you to peek in on conversations you've always wondered about. Say a hardcore anti-gay preacher meets an atheist who knows the Bible like the back of his hand, or a far-left social justice warrior meets a different kind of liberal who doesn't want to join in on the riots. On Dogma Debate, I talk to people who completely disagree with me, and I let them tell me why they think I'm wrong, why I should be on their team, and why they take such an extreme stance. And sometimes you'll just hear me hanging out with like-minded people and laughing during segments like Republicans Say the Darndest Things or Fact Check Yo Mama. It all happens on Dogma Debate right here on Podcast One. Stay tuned for 60 seconds of AP News headlines right after this podcast. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our web address. And you'll probably need to know that we have Clark Stinks at Clark.com because of what I'm about to step into. I'm going to talk about health care in the United States, which has become ridiculously political and should not be. Healthcare represents nearly one-fifth of the U.S. economy. It is a very uh, involved, complicated thing to provide health care, and there is no such thing as one right answer for health care. But we in the United States rank now 31st in the world for life expectancy, lifespan, and it puts us in the midst of a number of third world countries that either have superior lifespans to us or hang right about where we do. 
That's at the same time that we spend a far greater percent of our nation's wealth on health care than any other country on earth. Now, that's crazy. Now, we talk so much about Mexico with uh, the things going on with us and Mexico, and there's a projection that in the next 10 years, lifespans in Mexico will pass lifespans in the United States. And that's in spite of lifestyle problems in Mexico that have led to a big spike in diabetes and obesity, that Mexico at a much lower cost of national treasure is moving to a point where they'll have longer lifespans than we do for health care, I mean for lifespan for, for its citizens than we have for ours, in spite of the fact that we spend massive amounts more per person on health care than they do, and again, than any other country on earth. So one of the things that's, that is so ignored in the debate going on in Washington about health care and the dramatic statements by people on every side of it, even within both the Republicans and the Democrats about health care, is that they're all talking about rearranging what I would say is an expression I overuse, the deck chairs on the Titanic, which is the inefficiency and ridiculous cost of providing health care in the United States. So it is my belief that we need far more radical change in how we do health care in the United States in order to improve the results for you and me as a consumer give you and me more choice and to do something about the price of it. So starting with this, we keep siloing people in the United States with health care. We have people who get health care from their employer. We have people who get health care from the Veterans Affairs Department. We get people who get health care through the state federal Medicaid program. We have people who get health care through Medicare. We have people who right now get health care through the um, exchanges that were part of Obamacare. My belief, we need to be one big 330 million people market for health care in the United States that it needs to stop being something where you were put in one silo or another. And I believe one of the key steps is to end the employer part of health care in the United States, get employers completely out of the mix. Because one of the things we're going to face, whether we adopt the plan as written right now by the the U.S. House, where it is in the committees, or what we've had with Obamacare with the exchanges, eventually the exchanges death spiral, or the ways individuals buy coverage, I should say, death spirals, because you don't end up with a large enough pool of people. That's why we've been having this ongoing debate in each party's echo chambers about whether you mandate people to buy coverage or instead you penalize people when they later want to buy coverage because they didn't before. 
And both are looking at this, in my opinion, from the wrong perspective. So if we, instead of having having government-provided health care, which now provides health care to more than half of all Americans, by the way, and then have employer-provided health care, and then the others end up trying to go fend for themselves in an individual market, we would be much healthier as a country if each of us as individuals were responsible for buying our own coverage. And if you want to have subsidies for people based on age or income, fine. But I would even do that for people who are elderly. I would not have Medicare. I know that upsets a lot of people. I would have you buy an individual policy that instead would be purchased with a voucher, and that voucher would pay a base amount for health care for yourself if you were 65 or older, but that you would choose what coverages you would buy beyond that base in the free and open market. But there's a key issue that we have to address if we're going to get health care to work in the United States, and that is what's known as price transparency. We do not have it today, and we will not have a system where you and me as a consumer can make a smart decision about our health care until it is required that you be able to shop by price for the care that you are considering purchasing. Because what is so ridiculous is that if we right now, I do TV and we tried this before on TV, if we call around and try to find out what the cost of something is, we could not do it. We could not do it. Because the system is diametrically opposed right now to allowing you to shop by price. Consumers need to be armed with the tools to shop for care. Everything else we do in our lives, everything else, price is a signal and a tool that we use to decide what we buy and where we buy it. In healthcare, remember it's virtually one-fifth of our economy needs to be part of having price transparency. In addition, if you are buying a surgery or a procedure and you shop for it, the price you are quoted should be all in. No more surprise billing. No more balance billing. Because otherwise, we're just arguing about who's going to be covered and who's not, and who's going to pay what and who's not, and who's going to be taxed and who's not. Because it's got to start with recreating price discipline for health care in the United States. I also think that part, part of a solution is that the providers and insurers need to be the same entity. I'll uh, something like Kaiser Permanente. Because right now, we're left in a position where the insurer 
and the medical system or the insurer and the provider argue, 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 argue. And then when they're done arguing, who gets left stuck with the balance? You do and I do, and that is wrong. Because again, that eliminates price transparency from the system. I also think that people should have the option, as we used to do it in the United States, to have policies only for catastrophic issues. That everyday kind of medical stuff we would buy in the open market and we would shop for it and we would pay out of our own pocket for routine stuff. These are just some basic things because obviously there's so many elements to healthcare I could never get to all of them here. But the thing that I think is the most important missing part of what has gone on about health care in the United States for the last seven years is that it's being looked at strictly through political, party, or ideological prisms. Health care is a business like any other. And we must put in place procedures that make it, again, a business like any other and not something that is subject to the political whims of Washington. The people in the political class do not experience medical events like the rest of us. They are really immune from it. They are cordoned off from it. And so for them, it's all about talking points and political points and political advantage. This is too important for our nation's future, your health, your family's health, and our nation's finances and our individual finances for it to be something that is a political battle instead of one that is decided over time by market forces. I've had so many times in the past when I've talked about medical that people have said you can't look at medicine in terms of dollars and cents. But everywhere on earth, there are decisions that are made about medical care that are made with an eye to the wallet. There's only so much money to go around. And our use of money for medical care needs to become far more efficient than it is. The only tool that gets that done is clear pricing signals and you and me making the decisions about what care we are going to choose to buy. You want to comment on this? Remember, go to Clark.com and go to Clark Stinks. Bill is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Bill. Hi, how are you? Great, thank you, Bill. You're thinking of moving next door. Well, next door state, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I was just using a figure of speech. Uh-huh. Well, it's a pleasure to be on. And, well, it's great uh, to have you here. The move you're thinking of making has some 
unusual decisions involved with it, doesn't it? Well, uh, yes, uh, it's a comparable, uh, if we do move, it would probably be for a comparable uh, paying job. And so uh, we are in a state now that, that does not have a state income tax, and then we'd be moving to a state that would have an income tax. And now, the most brilliant people in Washington and Oregon live in Washington and do their shopping in Oregon. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, we, we do some of that, too. Uh-huh. So um, you would have to move from income tax-free Washington to to having to pay the income tax in Oregon. The The question then would become, what about the other factors? Because tax isn't everything. What are the things right. that make you that think right. about moving? I'm sorry? What are the things that make you think about moving? Like, what are the check marks for you? Well, that was my question uh, of, uh, of you uh, as far as the high-priority expenses. Uh, income taxes, obviously, uh, state income tax is obviously going to be one of them. And uh, I was hoping to get uh, some other suggestions on high-priority expenses between the states. All right, so uh, let's start Let's start with a fuzzy one, a touchy-feely one that has nothing to do with money. Mm-hmm. Do you love where you live and love what you do for work? Well, uh, the touchy-feely uh, aspects about it would all be a positive. We would be closer to kids. We would be close to the recreation we'd like to do. Uh, we would be in the sun more. <laughs> okay. Uh, because we're on the coast of Washington now. But, uh, uh, yes, all the, all the touchy feel things would be, would be positive. Mm-hmm. All right. So if they are all good, because I always want to start with that, because, again, money is not everything. It's a consideration. So if it would be a significant potential improvement in lifestyle, then the question becomes instead, can you afford that new lifestyle? So housing costs where you are in Washington to where you would move to in Oregon, how do they compare? Pretty good. Uh, pretty good. We, uh, we enjoy the area that we're in now and the, uh, the house we're in now, and uh, it looks like the, uh, a, a similar uh, living situation would be uh, uh, probably fine. So the pricing, you wouldn't go from uh, a low-level housing cost to a really high level. You'd be able to get equivalent housing without running up the budget. That is correct. All right. So then the only question is the issue of the state income tax, I would think, because if you're going to have a much better lifestyle and your housing costs which is the biggest expense most of us have, stays equivalent, then it's just a matter of is it worth the sacrifice of having a little less net money because of having to pay the Oregon state income tax? Right. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yes, it is, yes. And, then you uh, go. And, um, then you go. I mean, that, that's really it because the priority, as I look at the priorities, is – you start with what would make you happiest. And being closer to the kids would make you happier. The weather would make you happier. You're not going to be bumping up your lifestyle cost. I think you you go. You take the job and you go. All righty. Well, any other uh, uh, high-priority uh, economic factors that you would recommend? 
No, I don't think so, because the the biggest difference between the two states is the no sales tax on one side, the no income tax on the other. So you have some benefit, because you can't always shop in Oregon. You'll have some benefit from not paying the sales tax. I think you're you're good to do what you want to do and not feel like it's going to hit you in the wallet. Thanks for listening to the Clark Howard Podcast. Download new episodes every Monday through Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. I'm Rob Cisternino, the aptly named Rob Has a Podcast, where we're creating fun, smart conversation around reality TV games like Survivor. And this March, Survivor Game Changers is finally here. Join me weekdays for episode recaps, player interviews, and of course, your feedback. So if you're ready for a game change in your own Survivor experience, download Rob Has a Podcast at podcastone.com on the Podcast One app or subscribe on iTunes. What we're learning about the Manchester bomber. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. The father of the alleged Manchester suicide bomber says his son didn't do it. We don't believe in killing innocents, he told the AP. But the father reportedly was a member of an al-Qaeda-backed group in Libya years ago. That, according to a former Libyan security official. Meanwhile, police have carried out raids on a block of apartments in Manchester. Witnesses say they heard explosions. Alan Kinsey was a neighbour of the alleged bomber. The actual family that had been there, I'd, I'd never really come across them yeah. in bad ways. It was always, even when I said hello, they never seemed to speak back to you. It was just like kept themselves to themselves and that was about it. The British putting more military troops on the streets now as police say it's clear this is a network they're investigating. President Trump has arrived in Brussels for NATO meetings after a visit this morning with the Pope at the Vatican. I'm Rita Foley.